Part 2, Section 13 of The Dark Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arturo JR17. The Dark Flower by John Galsworthy. Section 30. Colonel Ercott was not a racing man, but he had in common with others of his countrymen a religious feeling in the matter of the Derby. His remembrances of it went back to early youth, for he had been born and brought up almost within sound of the coaching road to Epsom. Every Derby and Oaks day he had gone out on his pony to watch the passing of the tall hats and feathers of the great and the pot-hats and feathers of the lowly, and afterwards, in the fields at home, had ridden races with old Lindsay, finishing between a cow that judged and a clump of bulrushes representing the grandstand. But for one reason or another, he had never seen the great race, and the notion that it was his duty to see it had now come to him. He proposed this to Mrs. Ercott with some diffidence. She read so many books, he did not quite know whether she would approve. Finding that she did, he added casually, And we might take Olive. Mrs. Ercott answered dryly, You know the House of Commons has a holiday. The colonel murmured, Oh, I don't want that chap. Perhaps, said Mrs. Ercott, you would like Mark Lennon. The colonel looked at her most dubiously. Dolly could talk of it as a tragedy, and a, a grand passion, and yet make a suggestion like that? Then his wrinkles began slowly to come alive, and he gave her waist a squeeze. Mrs. Ercott did not resist that treatment. Take Olive alone, she said. I don't really care to go. When the colonel went to fetch his niece, he found her ready and very half-heartedly he asked for Cramier. It appeared she had not told him. Relieved, yet somewhat disconcerted, he murmured, You won't mind not going, I suppose? If he went, I should not. At this quiet answer, the colonel was beset again by all his fears. He put his white topper down and took her hand. My dear, he said, I don't want to intrude upon your feelings. But, but is there anything I can do? It's dreadful to see things going unhappily with you. He felt his hand being lifted, her face pressed against it. And, suffering acutely, with his other hand, cased in a bright new glove, he smoothed her arm. We'll have a jolly good day, sweetheart, he said, and forget all about it. She gave the hand a kiss and turned away, and the colonel vowed to himself that she should not be unhappy, lovely creature that she was, so delicate and straight and fine in her pearly frock. And he pulled himself together, brushing his white topper vigorously with his sleeve, forgetting that this kind of hat has no nap. And so he was, tenderness itself, on the journey down, satisfying all her wants before she had them, 
telling her stories of Indian life and consulting her carefully as to which horse they should back. There was the Duke's, of course, but there was another animal that appealed to him greatly. His friend Tabor had given him the tip. Tabor, who had the best Arabs in all India, and at a nice price. A man who practically never gambled, the colonel liked to feel that his fancy would bring him in something really substantial, if it won. The idea that it could lose not really troubling him. However, they would see it in the paddock and judge for themselves. The paddock was the place away from all the dust and racket. Olive would enjoy the paddock. Once on the course, they neglected the first race. It was more important, the colonel thought, that they should lunch. He wanted to see more color in her cheeks, wanted to see her laugh. He had an invitation to his old regiment's drag, where the champagne was sure to be good. And he was so proud of her, would not have missed those young fellows' admiration of her for the world. Though to take a lady amongst them was, in fact, against the rules. It was not then, till the second race was due to start, that they made their way into the paddock. Here the derby horses were being led solemnly, attended each by a little posse of persons, looking up their legs and down their ribs to see whether they were worthy of support, together with a few who liked to see a whole horse at a time. Presently they found the animal which had been recommended to the colonel. It was a chestnut, with a starred forehead, parading in a far corner. The colonel, who really loved a horse, was deep in admiration. He liked its head and he liked its hocks. Above all, he liked its eye. A fine creature, all sense and fire. Perhaps just a little straight in the shoulder for coming down the hill. And in the midst of his examination, he found himself staring at his niece. What breeding the child showed, with her delicate arched brows, little ears, and fine, close nostrils. And the way she moved so sure and springy. She was too pretty to suffer. A shame. If she hadn't been so pretty, that young fellow wouldn't have fallen in love with her. If she weren't so pretty, that husband of hers wouldn't... And the colonel dropped his gaze, startled by the discovery he had stumbled on. If she hadn't been so pretty. Was that the meaning of it all? The cynicism of his own reflection struck him between wind and water. And yet something in himself seemed to confirm it somehow. What then? Was he to let them tear her in two between them, destroying her because she was so pretty? And somehow this discovery of his, that passion springs from worship of beauty and warmth, of form and color, disturbed him horribly for he had no habit of philosophy. The thought seemed to him strangely crude, even immoral, that she should be thus between two ravening desires, a bird between two hawks, a fruit between two mouths. It was a way of looking at things that had never before occurred to him. The idea of a husband clutching at his wife the idea of that young man who looked so gentle swooping down on her, and the idea that if she faded, 
lost her looks, went off. Their greed, indeed, any man's, would die away. All these horrible ideas hurt him the more for the remarkable suddenness with which they had come to him. A tragic business. Dolly had said so. Queer and quick were women. But his resolution that the day was to be jolly soon recurred to him, and he hastily resumed inspection of his fancy. Perhaps they ought to have a ten-pound note on it, and they had better get back to the stand. And as they went, the colonel saw, standing beneath a tree at a little distance, a young man that he could have sworn was Lennon. Not likely for an artist chap to be down here. But it was undoubtedly young Lennon, brushed up in a top hat. Fortunately, however, his face was not turned in their direction. He said nothing to Olive, not wishing, especially after those unpleasant thoughts, to take responsibility, and he kept her moving towards the gate, congratulating himself that his eyes had been so sharp. In the crush there, he was separated from her a little, but she was soon beside him again, and more than ever he congratulated himself that nothing had occurred to upset her and spoil the day. Her cheeks were warm enough now, her dark eyes glowing. She was excited, no doubt, by thoughts of the race, and of the tenor he was going to put on for her. He recounted the matter afterwards to Mrs. Urquhart. That chestnut Tabor put me on to finished nowhere. Couldn't get down the hill. Knew it wouldn't the moment I set eyes on it. But the child enjoyed herself. Wish you'd been there, my dear. Of his deeper thoughts, and of that glimpse of young Lennon, he did not speak. For on the way home an ugly suspicion had attacked him. Had the young fellow, after all, seen and managed to get close to her in the crush at the paddock gateway? End of section 30